Welcome, glad you're here. Um, if I haven't had a chance to, to meet you, if you're visiting with us today, honored to have you. Uh, my name is Jason Williams, and I have the honor of serving as lead pastor here at Solid Rock, and uh, just glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Job 28 uh, in just a few minutes. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if you have a copy of God's Word and, and want to follow along, Job 28. Um, just a couple of things. One, I wanted to uh, do a team ministry spotlight. Uh, take a moment to tell you about one of our teams here at the church that you may not even be aware of because what they do is almost 100% behind the scenes. This is our leadership team. And so if you know anything about Solid Rock Church, we are not a pastor-run church. We are an elder-led church, which means um, that I meet with a group of, of elders, or eight of us, um, to make the big decisions for the church. We meet throughout the month. But we have a leadership team of uh, leaders, men and women who are leading in some area in the church, a community group leader or a team leader, um, who make up the leadership team and meet with the elders uh, once a month as well. And this is the team of people that we uh, work through tough issues with. We work through big decisions, uh, whether it be a new building decision or a big financial decision or um, a theological position. Um, we study the word together. We pray with our leadership team and we discuss the big, big things of the church. And so I want to take a moment today just to spotlight this team um, and tell you about them and what they do. They're not a decision-making team, uh, but they're involved in almost all the big decisions of the church. And, uh, and so the way this works is we have currently six uh, members of the leadership team. Next year will be seven. Um, every year, either two or three rotate off, and then two or three new ones rotate on. And, and each person serves three years before they rotate off. And so this year, um, rotating off from last year are Robbie Waller, who's up in the sound booth, and Stacy Grubb, who's sitting somewhere over here. Uh, they've served their three years um, on leadership team and been a part of a lot of the big decisions over the last three years. Um, and they're rotating off and taking their place are uh, Janet Stevens and Jackie Schutza. And so this is Jackie Schutza. And then uh, Janet Stevens will be rotating on to start their three-year term um, this month. And I uh, wanted you to know who the new team uh, members are, but also about that team. Um, if ever you've got a question or aren't sure, you know, how to get to an elder or talk to an elder, um, anybody on leadership team should be able to help get you guided and pointed in the right direction. Um, and so feel free to, to, to communicate with our leadership team or ask them questions. And so um, wanted you to know about them and also know about our new members serving 2019. So welcome Jackie Schutze and Janet Stevens to the team. Um, all right, so we are in Job chapter 28. Uh, this is the second week in our sermon series entitled, Worthy of Worship, and this is a, an overview of the book of Job, an unlikely place to go to in the Bible to learn about worship, right? We tend to think of Job as the book of suffering, and yet what we're learning week by week is that really it's ultimately a book about worship. And suffering just happens to be the thing going on in Job's life at this point, but he was a man of worship. And so uh, not only are we learning that about the book of Job, we're learning about how our worship um, infiltrates, it transcends into every aspect of our practical everyday life. And today specifically, we're going to be talking about wisdom, how our worship leads us to true wisdom and how true wisdom, God's wisdom actually leads us to worship. And there's this beautiful cycle and relationship between our worship, what our heart adores, what our heart longs for, and the wisdom that we operate within. So in the book of Job, there's a couple of things that are helpful. All throughout the book of Job, um, you've got God's wisdom on trial. In other words, the human people who are in the story are constantly kind of questioning God's wisdom. Is it wise that God would let me go through this or let Job go through this? Is this wisdom? This must be your fault, Job. This must be some other cause. Is it really wise for God to let this happen? I don't know if you've ever 
question God in that way. When you were going through something, God, have you forgotten me? Are you not hearing my prayers? This doesn't seem wise to me. Where are you? And so there's this theme where God's wisdom is always on trial. And also what's happening throughout the book of Job is this. There's this kind of this theme happening where whoever has the the wisdom has the platform to speak. And so you're going to see a progression through the book of Job where, um, where, first of all, Job's wife speaks and tells Job, hey, curse God and die. And then, then she is silenced by Job's three friends who enter the story, and they begin to take turns trying to speak wisdom into Job's situation. Well, we're going to see that later on, after three rounds of debates with his friends, in verse 26, these three friends get cut off by Job, and now he has the platform to speak. And then just a few chapters later, there's this other character, Elihu, who's going to enter the story, who's going to silence Job. He's going to speak, only to a few chapters later, Elihu himself is silenced and God speaks. And so you see this progression of whoever has the wisdom in the room has the microphone, has the platform to speak. Now, um, in chapter 28, what's happening is, is this. So as Job's friends speak to him, he usually lets them go on for a while. Matter of fact, they typically get anywhere between 20 and 35 verses in their monologue before the next person cuts off the previous person and begins to speak. And then after about 20 to 30 verses, that person gets cut off and the next person speaks. Well, something happens in chapter 25. Job has had enough and his friend Bilidad only gets to speak six verses. And so Job cuts him off and takes the microphone from him and begins to speak. And we're going to see in chapter 28 that Job is really wrestling with this idea of wisdom. Where can wisdom be found? So we'll start in verse 1 of Job 28. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. What he's describing here is the industry of mining. Now, for this time and place and culture, that would have been the place where you would find the greatest technology, the greatest extents of man's knowledge and wisdom as man dug these deep holes, these shafts into the earth in order to bring out into the light things that were precious. And so Job is thinking about these things. He's thinking about all that man can do. And continuing in verse 9, he says this, he Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by its roots. He cuts out channels in the rock and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the stream so that they do not trickle and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. And so again, Job is thinking about the extent of man's capability to have knowledge and wisdom and think and calculate and manipulate and manage the earth. He's saying, God, I've, I know about these things. This is the extent of what we can do. We can dig shafts deep down into the earth that are dark and we can take light down into those shafts and then we can bring back out into the light things that are precious and hidden like gold and silver and, and, and precious 
jewels. Man can do these things. But look at verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And Job is acknowledging, you know what? It's hard to find wisdom in man. It's hard to find wisdom in what man can do. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not in me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold or offer in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued as pure gold. And so Job is saying two things. First of all, man cannot find wisdom or attain wisdom in his own strength or his own ability. So wisdom is not found right here. Here's what man can do. He can dam up streams, build a lake, dig caverns deep into the earth, build bridges across rivers, can take light, torches down deep into the earth, harvest out sapphire and rubies and gold. But wisdom is not found in what man can do. Not only that, man does not know the true value of wisdom. Wisdom cannot be purchased and it cannot be found within man. Look at verse 20. Once again, he asks, so from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight, and apportion the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and he declared it. He established it and searched it out. And listen to verse 28. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Now all throughout chapter 8, this probing question is bothering Job. Where can wisdom be found? I certainly didn't find it in my three friends. I'm not finding it within myself. I look around me at the world and I look at what man can do and I can't find it in the latest technology, the latest discovery of science, right? I can't find it anywhere on earth and nor can I find anything to buy it with. Because why? Because wisdom is found in God Alone and God alone understands the way to it, He knows its place. Now, I want you to think for a minute about the adversary or the enemy of wisdom in our lives. The Bible would say this pride is your greatest adversary, your greatest enemy when it comes to attaining wisdom. Now, what is pride? 
Pride is that thing inside of us that elevates our opinions and ideas above those of others around us, including God. That's pride. I know what's best, right? I know what's best for me. I know what I need to make me happy. I know what I need to make me feel complete. I know what I need to to feel like I have purpose in life and I want these things so I can be whole and I can be healthy and I can be happy. And then ultimately those are prideful things, right? To say my opinion, my perspectives are superior. And so my own pride acts as an enemy or an adversary to wisdom in my life. Because you know what the bottom line is this, my pride is self-worship. It is. Whether I'm discussing something with you and I'm being prideful, like thinking I'm a know-it-all and I know more than you and my way is right, and maybe we're debating or even arguing about something, really I'm self-worshipping. I'm saying my, my ways are better. I know what's better than you do. Now, apply that to God, and it truly becomes self-worship. When we say, God, I know what the Bible says, but this is what I'm feeling. I know what the Bible says, but here's what I want to do, what I want to say, or how I want things to go. I'm being prideful, and I'm ultimately engaged in self-worship. This is where we get to that place where we say, you know what, I'm going to follow my gut. Or I'm going to make my decisions based on how I feel. Anybody ever done that and it not go well? Yeah, feelings, gut feelings are are bad criteria on which to make important decisions. Whether it's a relationship decision or a business decision, right? Trusting your gut, how you feel, is, is, is shallow criteria when it comes to making a wise decision. And ultimately, when I go with my gut, I'm engaging in pride and saying, what I feel is, is, is right is, is right. And I'm engaged in self-worship. Pride convinces us that we know best. So what did Job mean? What did God mean, rather, when he spoke to Job in 28 and said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil, that is understanding. We go back to last week where we talked about this phrase, fear of the Lord. Ultimately, this is a description of true worship. It's the picture of a heart, not running in fear from God, but bowing down to God in reverence and really awestruckness of who God is. To be so overwhelmed with his majesty, his bigness, and in today's topic, his infinite wisdom, that you bow your heart before him. And what God is saying is that's the beginning of wisdom. So, according to the Bible, wisdom is not a matter of the mind, it's a matter of the heart. And that's what Job is discovering. If it were a matter of the mind, then we could figure it out, right? We could discover it on our own, but we can't. So, wisdom is found by posturing your heart in worship before God. We come before God and we say, God, your ways are not my ways. Your wisdom is higher than my wisdom. Your words hold more weight than my words. What you feel is right is right, and what I feel is right is often wrong. Right? That's, that's worship. It's exalting God. That's lifting God up. And what God is saying is, Job, you want to find wisdom? You're not going to find it in what you can do. Here's where you're going to find it, by posturing your heart in awe and worship before me. 
fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Now, we see a shift in the book of Job from pride to humility. And you've really got to cover multiple chapters to see it. So there was a, kind of this principle like we've talked about before in this culture where if you were sitting around in a group of people discussing something, maybe the dinner table, and each person would speak, usually the person with the most wisdom would wait the longest to speak. you have anybody in your family like that? They let all the foolish chatter happen. But then when they speak, it kind of puts an end to things, right? It makes everybody in the room just kind of want to cover their mouth. We see that in the book of Job and even in Job's life. Matter of fact, in Job 21, uh, when he's getting frustrated with his friends and their lack of wisdom, in verse 5, he says, look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. That's nice Old Testament biblical terms for saying, shut up. I'm tired of your foolish chatter. Shut your mouth. And so Job is saying that to his friends. And then by the time we get to chapter 29, Job's starting to get frustrated because he can't figure out where wisdom is. He knows his friends don't have it, but he can't find it in himself. He starts to think about the good old days. You ever do that? When things get rough? Right, man, if I could just go back. I wish I could feel like I used to feel. I wish I could do what I used to do. I wish I could go back and do it again. He begins to to lament the good old days because, see, in the good old days, Job was a man who was respected for his wisdom. The people who who he lived around, they knew that Job was a wise man. Listen to chapter 29, what Job says. Verse 7, he says, When I went out to the gate of the city, When I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. So Job's used to that. He's used to being the wisest guy in the room. He's used to everybody else around him voluntarily shutting their mouths, laying their hands over their mouths, even the aged in, in his city, even the princes who he encountered. The voice, verse 10, of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. Verse 21, men listened to me and waited and kept silent for my counsel. And after I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. That's how it used to be. Where are the days where I had what I thought was wisdom, and everybody around me acknowledged it? And he's coming to that place of humility where he's realizing, I don't know where to get it. I don't know where it's found. I am not as wise as I thought I was. Well, just... A short time later, this is where Elihu enters into the story and he silences the three friends and then he silences Job and he begins to hold the platform of wisdom and speak. In verse, or chapter 35, 16, he says this about Job. Job. Job opens up his mouth in empty talk and he multiplies words without knowledge. Job, you're a fool. You should be the one keeping your mouth quiet. You should be the one putting your hand over your mouth because you are not wise compared to the infinite wisdom of God. And then we see in chapter 40 when God speaks to Job 
after Job has started complaining. We saw this last week, just verses four and five. This is to Job 40. Job says this, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? Talking to God. I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. And this is where Job goes from pride, telling his friends, y'all shut up and listen to me. And then he gets rebuked by Elihu, who's like, Job, you need to be the one to shut your mouth. God speaks and Job goes, whoa, I need to shut my mouth. I need to be the one putting my hand over my mouth and listening to what God has to say. Why? Because he who holds and possesses wisdom holds the platform. He who has true wisdom gets the microphone. God, I need to hear from you. I need to hear from you. Isn't this interesting, though, how our conversations work when we debate and argue with one another, whether it's coworker to coworker or employer to employee or husband to wife, wife to husband or kids to parents, parents to kids. Isn't, don't we typically try to take the microphone by raising our voice or one-upping or talking over one another, cutting one another off or using the passive-aggressive approach? Whatever. What's wrong? Nothing. See, that's, that's an aggressive stance, isn't it? That's saying, I know what's wise right now, but I'm just not going to give you any more ammunition. I'm not going to say anything else. And, and so we do this in casual conversation. We apply this principle. He who has the microphone knows what's best and has wisdom. Parents, do you do that in your own house? Thinking that getting louder makes you wiser? Will cause your children to want to listen to you? It might make them shut their mouths, but it doesn't necessarily change their hearts and make them want to listen to us, does it? And here in the book of Job, God is coming to Job and he's saying, Job, it's time for you to shut your mouth. It's time for you to put your hand over your mouth and listen. Oh, that we would acquire the life-giving, wisdom-attaining habit of shutting our mouths. Especially when you think you're right. Especially when pride is welling up, convincing you that you're the one who sees accurately. Next time you're in a heated discussion with your significant other, I want you to try something. Shut your mouth. Right? Lest we open our mouths and prove our foolishness. Now, this is what's happening in Job's heart. And in chapter 32, this is where Elihu breaks the silence. He's going to rebuke the three friends, say, you guys shut up. And Job, you shut up. God has some things he wants to say. But listen to how this works and see if you can't relate. This is verse 4 of Job 32. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. So Elihu's the young one. And he thought, well, surely these three guys or Job should know more than me. So I'm going to be quiet and let them speak. Verse 5. And when Elihu saw there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzai, answered him and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I, I knew better. I thought for sure you guys had more wisdom than me. So I, I was being quiet so you guys could speak. Verse 7, I said, Let days speak and many years teach wisdom. 
And ultimately what Elihu is acknowledging is there was no wisdom. It didn't matter how old you were, how old you are. Wisdom is not found in man's abilities. Look at verse 8. He begins to point us to the right direction. But it is the spirit of man, the breath of the Almighty. He's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. It is the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the age who understand what is right. Look at verse 13. Beware lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. And so here at the end of the day is Elihu stepping into the conversation going, guys, 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 guys. You're fools. I've been sitting over here listening, thinking that you had more wisdom than me, but you don't. Your many years, right, hasn't proved to be wise, has not proved yourselves to be wise. And then he begins to point them in the right direction by saying, guys, listen, you're only going to find wisdom in the Almighty. That's the only place you're going to find wisdom for Job here. You're not helping him. It's the spirit inside of you. It's the almighty God who brings wisdom. And then he lands with this warning in verse 13. Beware lest you say we have found wisdom. Now, church, we need to acknowledge something right now. You are not as wise as you will be 20 years from now. You go, okay, I can get on board with that. Now, we can prove it right now, right? So if you're over the age of 40 and you're willing, would you just raise your hand so I can see about how many people we have over the age of 40 with me? Okay, so how many of us are wiser now than we were when we were 16? (laughs) Yeah, every one of us, I hope, right? How many of us are, are wiser now than we were when we were 20? Okay, yeah, hands are still going up. How many of us are wiser now than we were even when we were 35? Still wiser yet, right? Which tells us what? We, we better be wiser. We will be wiser when we reach 60, but we have not yet arrived. We do not know as much as we think we do about life, about God, about ourselves. See how arrogant it is to stand in pride and say, I know it all. I know more than you. I found it out. I've figured it out. That's what's happening in Job's life. He's like, guys, I've come to the place where I've realized I don't know it all. I have not figured it out. I thought I knew it all. Everybody around me thought I knew it all. And Elihu issues this warning, be careful. Be careful, lest you say to yourself and try to convince yourself, I've found wisdom. I know what's best. Now, in chapter 33... Chapter 33, verse 29, we're going to get some real wisdom here about who God is and how his wisdom contrasts with the wisdom. Now, remember where we started. Job was looking for wisdom. He laid out some things that man was able to accomplish. He described how man could cut shafts deep into the earth, take artificial or take light down into those like torches and light it up and then excavate precious things and bring things that were hidden and precious out into the light. Look at just something Elihu says in Job 33. 
Verse 29, behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man. Verse 30, to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. What Elihu is saying is this, in the same way that man can cut channels deep into the earth, God cuts channels deep into the heart of man. In the same way that man can take light deep into the earth, God can take light deep into the heart of man. To bring his, verse 30, to bring his soul from the pit or the mine, that he may be lighted with the light of life. God can bring light to the depths of who we are and bring to the surface things that are precious. In the same way man can work the earth, God can work the human soul. You begin to see the contrast between the wisdom and the abilities of man and the wisdom and the abilities of God, don't you? You think you're wise because you can dig a hole. Try to look into the heart of man. You think you're wise because you, you built a fire and said, ah, I made fire, and you put it on a stick, and you took it down into a cave. You're like, look at this. We don't need the sun. We can do this on our own. And God takes the light of life deep into the soul and the heart of man. Man, you think that you are something because you found things deep in the earth that are of value, ore and silver and gold and sapphire, and you bring them out into the light. But God can bring the hidden things of the human heart out into the light, things that are precious and eternal and life-giving. See, that's how the wisdom of man compares to the wisdom of God. And then this section on wisdom ends in chapter 36, verses 24 to 26, where Elihu ultimately calls us to worship. And we see this cycle come complete. In chapter 36, verse 24, remember to extol his work. Lift up his work. Magnify his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. That's a description of the work of God. You see, what I believe Elihu's talking about when he talks about what God can do, he's talking about redemption. He's talking about how God can not just fix things on the surface, but he can fix things deep in the human soul. He can repair and he can mend and he can bring light into our darkness. Right? Man can't do that. God can do that. Those are the works of God that we are to extol and exalt and magnify. And he says, mankind looked on it, the works of God. Man beheld it from afar. We barely understand the works of God. Listen to this. Behold, God is great. Behold, look, pay attention. God is is great and we know him not the number of his years is unsearchable what is he saying there as he calls us to behold that God is great when he says that we know him not what he's saying is that you and I cannot comprehend the works of God in our mind we can't completely know him or understand him his ways are higher than our ways his wisdom is higher than our wisdom Behold, that's who God is. All the wisdom of man culminates and gets passed on from one generation to the next, doesn't it? 
Today's technology is built on what the last generation discovered, which was built on the technology and the understanding and the science of what the last generation discovered. And we, we progress from generation to generation, but God's days and his years are what? Unsearchable. He's not building off of somebody else's wisdom or understanding. He has no beginning. He has no end. His wisdom is infinite in and of himself. That's why God is great. He can't be fully comprehended. And his wisdom is above ours. You know what? It's one thing for me to say, the Bible teaches that God is infinitely wise. It's a whole other thing altogether for me to truly believe it. It really is. And it's not a matter of the mind, whether or not God's ways make sense to me. It's a matter of the heart. Because when I posture my heart in worship, it's then and only then that I'm ready to receive and to embrace God's wisdom because his ways are not my ways. Right, and I have to make a decision. Either I believe it or I don't. Like when I read God's word and, and, I, and, I, and I read God's wisdom and what he desires for me and what he calls me to, and I know what I feel like doing, oftentimes those are two different things. Anybody else? Oftentimes, almost always, his wisdom is not my wisdom. And I have to make a choice. Do I believe that his wisdom is superior or not? If I do, I'm going to bow to it. I'm going to surrender to it. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to apply it by faith, not by gut feeling. Either I believe it or I don't. If I claim to believe it, then my heart will follow and you will see a shift in my life, my life from pride to humility. I'll be the guy who brags about what I don't know. You ever heard the old man say that? The more I learn, the more I learn what I actually don't know. That's the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> That's the beginning of realizing, I don't know squat. I thought I had the world by the horns at age 16. And then at age 20, I was a know-it-all, and I had my plans mapped out. And then at 30, I just knew what was going to happen and what kind of children I was going to have and where I was going to live. And then at age 40, I, I adjusted all my expectations. And then I figured out life. And then at age 60, I looked back at all and went, you know what? I didn't know anything. I didn't know squat. If anything, I'm learning every day just how much I don't know. When we worship God in awe and reverence, we are declaring that God is superior in all things. Therefore, when he speaks, we are inclined to listen to his wisdom. When we turn our hearts towards God, our hearts release our grip on pride. You can't worship God and yourself at the same time. You can't. You can't worship God and be a know-it-all at the same time. When you posture your heart before God, you say, God, you're far more superior than me. This thing happens where you begin to release your grip on all that you know. And your pride begins to fade. And our hearts begin to posture themselves ready to receive wisdom. Ultimately, attaining wisdom is not a matter of the mind. It's not how smart you are. It's a matter of the heart. This whole section that we've kind of covered today uh, about wisdom, it ends with a call to worship God for his incomprehensible attributes and his, his unsearchable existence. Why? Because when we do that, we're struck with awe and our hearts worship. And worship leads us to what? Wisdom. And wisdom leads us to what? To worship. There's this beautiful cycle between worship and finding and discovering God's infinite wisdom. You want to be wise? You want to be more wise than you are right now? 
You need to become a worshiper of God. Already worship God, but you want to become more wise? And listen, here's what we need. We need more worship. We need deeper worship. We need to see God as bigger than we saw him before. We need to let this last phrase that Elihu ends with here, behold, God is great, needs to become our anthem. That means look with unveiled eyes and see how big God is. See how majestic God is. Nobody wants to be a fool. The Bible says if you truly want to be wise, listen, the fear of the Lord, that's where you're going to find wisdom. I want to, I want to land here today and spend some time praying together and responding and in just a minute, our worship team is going to come up, and we're going to sing together, and we're going to worship through singing. Um, I, don't, I don't know where everybody is today. Maybe you've come into this day, and your life's a wreck. And it's a wreck partially because of what we talked about today. And as, as we're working through the book of Job, you're going, yep, I messed up there, I messed up there, I messed up there, I messed up there. And that's why things are such a wreck. Here's what's beautiful about the book of Job is that the book of Job is ultimately a beautiful portrait of redemption. God is a master of stepping into the human soul, digging deep into who you are and bringing light into your darkness. If that's you and you're here today and life is just a wreck and you're just struggling to find purpose and meaning, the answer is not found in the wisdom of man. It's found in God and God alone. So I'm gonna pray for you that you would find that today you would posture your heart before God in worship. You would begin to let go of your pride and being a know-it-all and, and, and trusting in your own wisdom and strength and knowledge, and you would submit yourself to the wisdom of God. If you're here today and you have not taken a, step, taken a step of faith for the first time to trust in Jesus as your Savior, listen, let's do that today. That's what the cross is about. God's saying, you're not smart enough to figure this out. You're not moral enough to figure this out. You're not strong enough to get to heaven on your own. So let me do it for you. Let me send my son, Jesus. He'll take care of the penalty you owe. He'll pay that price. And not only that, he will overcome sin and death for you. So you can have access to me. If that's you, I'm going to pray that you'll make that decision today. If you want someone to talk with you about becoming a Christian today, would you grab one of our prayer partners? They're going to move. There'll be some at the front and some at the back, and they would be honored to talk with you and pray with you today. Let's pray together, and let's posture our hearts in worship before the Almighty God. Father, thank you that you are above all things. God, your wisdom is higher than ours. Thank you for reminding us today, oh God, that without you, we are hopeless. We are stark, stuck in darkness. We're nothing but fools without you, God. So Father, today, together, we declare you are infinitely wise and we posture our hearts in awe and worship of who you are, God, that we might find wisdom, your wisdom, God. Pray, Father, your spirit would move through this room, move through our hearts. Call to us, God. Speak to us, God. Draw us to yourself, God. Convict us. Heal us. Save us, we pray in the name of Jesus.